podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast, where we are all learning Romanian. Also, not talking about football because Calvin's a Manchester United fan. And that's the last I'll say about it. Any references to five, five nil, five goals, or Salah will just be coincidental, I assure you. Um, we'll, of course, be talking tennis uh, throughout. Uh, we've got to discuss Novak Djokovic. We've got to talk about vaccinations. Yannick Sinner's back on form. Aslan Karatsev as well. Yes, him. Remember him. Uh, Annette Kontavite, uh, Andy Murray, of course, and that woman, Emma Raducanu, who returns to action this week out in Transylvania. Um, no vampire jokes, please. Uh, we will start, though, with a different type of uh, skin penetration. I don't know if that works. There's a vampire vaccination jab gag here somewhere, and I can't really crowbar it in. Um, I can't do it alone. Of course, I'm joined by Calvin Beton and George Belshaw, as always. Uh, and we'll start with Novak Djokovic, who has been told that he won't be allowed into Australia unless he's double vaccinated. Although there's been some news kind of breaking in the last couple of minutes, really. Um, ben Rothenberg of the New York Times, to whom we're always eternally grateful for um, publishing all sorts of uh, remarkable journalism. Um, the WTA players have been sent an email basically sort of clarifying what the Australian or the Victorian government specifically are going to mandate for players. And essentially, if you're double vaccinated, you can do what you want. You can turn up when you want. Um, you've got to have a negative test within 72 hours and test when you get there. And then you can just live a normal life. If you haven't been vaccinated, um, you have to do two weeks of hard quarantine. You have to uh, submit to regular testing uh, as well as all the negative testing on arrival, which you know, it's not being confirmed and, and you know, it was a, a confidential email that got leaked, but that kind of gives you an idea of what what exactly is uh, potentially going on. Um, George Belshaw, what do you kind of make of this and, and maybe fill us in on some of the, the, the way the Djokovic stuff has been handled up to now as well? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any great surprise. I think behind the scenes, people have kind of had an idea that's what they're trying to get. I, I think the caveat that is sort of in that email is that, you know, this is what we're planning. This is what Tennis Australia are trying to do. But you've got to bear in mind when, when this sort of thing is leaked, there'll be a backlash in Australia and that can immediately change it. Um, so, you know, if people are unable to get their family in or whatever who are unvaccinated, that's probably not going to sit very well with uh, Australians who are there already when some tennis players kind of rock up and start doing that. So um, I think the more likely scenario is that players won't come unvaccinated to be honest I don't I don't see people wanting to turn up and play and have two weeks hard quarantine you know last year the players who had to do that it, it was a bit of a struggle for the majority um we saw a lot of losses that maybe we wouldn't have seen um and people you know blaming that for it so I, I can't I can't imagine there'll be a rush to do it I think we'll start seeing the vaccination rate go up of players I think that's probably fair to say um, Where are we at the moment in terms of numbers from, from what people have been saying? So I think the latest is something around 60% WCA and ATP, mm. maybe. It might be a little bit less. Um, I, I'd expect that figure to go up. Um, I still can't believe that Djokovic would turn down the chance to win a 21st slam. Um, whether you know He's saying he's not going to say if he's vaccinated or not, but if we 
make the dangerous assumption he's not vaccinated. Um, <laughs> yeah, for the record, if you get asked a question about whether you're vaccinated or not, and your answer, answer is a lengthy repost about vaccine apartheid and how you couldn't possibly tell anyone whether you're vaccinated or not because they would use it against you. I think we can be fairly certain you're not vaccinated at that point. Um, I, I just find it hard to believe he wouldn't go for a 10th Australian Open and a 21st Grand Slam title to move ahead of Federer and Nadal. Um, I, I'd just be very surprised if he actually took that move. But Do you think, um, Calvin Beton, do you think he would not get vaccinated and then do all the like quarantine stuff that you have to do in order to win a 10th Australian Open? Is he that ensconced in his morals at this point? Um, yeah, I mean, he's nuts, isn't he? So he probably would. <laughs> I, 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 I guess, I don't know. I'd, I'd say he's probably like literally bang on 33.33% equal that he could do any of the three. Yeah, I don't think I don't think he's absolutely definite that he'd go. He's such a lunatic that it wouldn't surprise me if he if he didn't. Mm. Um, just to make a stand, it, it's kind of what he does. I mean, he he might be injured as well. I guess you know he could he could find a way around it that way, couldn't he? Like I just say he's injured and mm. um, but but yeah, I mean, he, I think yeah, I I I think he'd probably be there in one way or another. Um, but it'd be interesting to see what he does. He's, he's really, so as you say, he's really set his stall out on not getting vaccinated, hasn't he? So mm. we just don't know. I think the one thing that is worth considering about the hard quarantine, and I'm pretty sure he won't really be that up for it either way, just given kind of the nature, but a big difference from last year is going to be the timing. So I think they can go from the 1st of December. So in yes. the they'd get out. If he, if he wanted to go 1st of December, and, you know, that's a long time to spend in Australia as well. So he, I'm not saying he would necessarily want to do that, but there is time to have that two-week quarantine and then get, say, three weeks under your belt match play after. So I think the effects wouldn't be as bad as they were for the guys last year who were then coming out and pretty much having to play straight away. But that obviously has implications. You know, Novak spent a lot more time with his family this year. We know that he has greater kind of um, feelings of uh, responsibility and, and he's understanding a bit more about, you know, what he gains from being at home and spending time with his family. So, you know, and I, I don't know what the situation is going to be with family. I would guess they would make you take your family with you, with you and hard quarantine with them. And, you know, hard quarantine is one thing. Doing it with your wife and kids all in the same hotel room, probably quite a different one. Uh, I wonder if that'll play a bit of a role. Because we know, of course that it played a role with Roger last year when they basically, you know, there were lots of things going on with Roger Federer last year, but a big one was, sorry, you can't bring your family, basically. Um, and I think that was basically a deal breaker for Roger. I know there were kind of conflicting reports, all of which were put out by Australian Open officials about exactly what it was. But, you know, the same, the point stands. The other thing that's kind of worth bringing up um, and hasn't been clarified yet is what's going to happen if we get in a situation like we had last year with positive tests on planes. I, I'm not mm. sure they've got a solution to that yet, but that will be a big worry in the mind of players again, given what happened last year. Um, so my my gut feeling would be, I, I think people will arrive quite early. I think that's the safest route to take it. Um, get there around, you know, 15th of whatever, or 10th of December and yeah. have a long stint there because it, it is such a huge amount of money for a lot of these players that 
it's kind of not worth well, the chance. You mentioned the money, and you're right to. And I was going to kind of put this across that realistically, if you're an unvaccinated player between 20 and 90 in the world, I think there is no danger you don't go to the Australian Open. Calvin, you might disagree, but it's a hell of a lot of money for someone in that bracket, you know, outside the top 20, but still getting automatic main draw places to not go. Yeah, that'll all go, I would think. Um, it's, it's a huge thing for them. And I think this... The money ties into the tennis players with the vaccines as well in that a lot of the guys were, I guess, ranked 60 and below. They're not absolutely nailed on for money and they need the money for turning up and playing first round draws. And I think, well, I not think I've been told by a few players that the reason why they've not had the vaccine yet is that it's not that then it's not that they're anti-vax. It's far from it. But there is a chance that you do get ill for a few days when you have it and they... And, and I know some of them have. And I know when I had it, to be fair, I was pretty bad for about 36 hours. Hmm. And they don't want to risk that being the case so they can't play in one of the weeks. So their plan is always that they will get them done when there's a break in their schedule. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 can't, I can't see the logic in that. They, these, these guys need the money. They, won't, they, they can't just take a week off and, and say, I'm not going to bother taking that three grand from that 250 first round or something. It was, it was Shardy, wasn't it, who had the first jab and then said yeah. he wouldn't have the second one because of the kind of the knock-on effects. Um, again, I, I I think now this is kind of... This has really taken a decision out of the tour's hands, really, to be honest. I think this is probably a pretty delighting moment for them to actually have Australia mandating this. If they were running into a kind of serious problem, like having, you know, essentially half of your top 10 on the ATV side, um, if you believe the intel we get um who aren't vaccinated and that, that's a huge proportion for your kind of mega stars um, and calvin's right like in terms of the money they probably don't need to go to australia but i still would be very surprised even for them jo- Djokovic is the one i'm most on the fence about because you know he's he's won so much he's got so much you know it, it feels like there could be more wiggle room there um mm. But I'd be really, really surprised. I guess you've got Sabalenka on the women's side who's come out and said she's not done it. Um, she'll be an interesting one. Just as someone we know 100% hasn't had it and has been yeah. against it, will she change her mind? Joanna Conta, she's another one who's come out and shown kind of a bit of uh, reticence. Will she go? I mean, it'll be really interesting, fascinating story. It's not going anywhere. Um, and it's all going to come yeah. to a pretty interesting head. In the winter. I mean, you, men- you, you mentioned Arena Savalenka there, and it, it's kind of relevant to this story that's broken in the last couple of hours about the WTA email. Um, her fellow Belarusian, Victoria Azarenka, uh, came out and quote retweeted Ben Rothenberg and said, the fact that this was shared to players confidentially, and within two hours, Ben, you're posting this, you clearly haven't read the email, unless I missed the point that you're a WTA player now, which I don't really get. Um I mean, you can either have the view that journalism is about turning up to press conferences and listening carefully and writing what people tell you to write, or you can take the view that you should be trying to, you know, get the truth out there and expose as much information as you can work in the public interest. I mean, there's there's not a very strong public interest argument in this case. It's it's a straight up scoop, um, and I I think it's fine personally, but it does not surprise me. And this isn't a slight of it against Victoria Azarenko in particular, but it does not surprise me that. The Belarusians who are on tour 
are some of the more vocal in, in the kind of anti-vaccination, anti-COVID kind of rhetoric when you consider that the, and I don't know his official title, but I'm going to call him the dictator of Belarus, Lutashenko, largely ignored COVID for a long time. Um, you you may remember, if you're a football fan, that in about April 2020, you couldn't watch any football in Europe because there was none going on, except the Belarusian Premier League. And I very briefly became a big fan of sporting Luhask, um, uh, watching dodgy streams, and they still had fans. So what I'm trying to say is everyone is so influenced by what's gone on in their own country, even you know when it's ne- not necessarily been there. They might have done lockdown in other places. And it's easy to forget that in Australia, things are very different and that Australia has had quite a hard pandemic. Like the, some of the lockdowns in like certain states in Australia have been brutal and they are now able to make some of these allowances because they're getting to, I think in Victoria, the vaccination rate is going to hit 80% at the end of the week. And then next month it's going to hit 90%. Now, if we were at 90% in this country, we'd be laughing. We're not, and we're not laughing. And Christmas is probably going to get cancelled because of it. Um, but that's just my personal opinion. That's not official. Uh, so I just think it's it's such international sport and there's so many different viewpoints. And I think you see so often that players don't have any perspective. Like they're both very narrow-minded in terms of they can only see what's gone in, in their own lives or like people that they know. And let's face it, for most tennis players, the number of people that they know is not high. And they also don't really have much of an appreciation of what's going on in other countries, despite, you know, being on an international tour. So I don't know. I just think they spend their life in bubbles uh, long before COVID ever became a thing. And it's very hard for them to have a proper opinion. Yeah. And I think, again, you know, this, this is why I think this, this, the story's now reached its most interesting part, because it, to me it made, and I'm put sense in the strictest quote marks here, but it makes sense to me that they've fallen down this logic hole where they're like, well, I'm worried about what I'm putting in my body because they're permanently mm. worried about what they're putting in their bodies. But yeah. they're also permanently worried about the chance to make money and play at the biggest events. And now the two are coming to a head. They're going to have to make a decision pretty clearly. And, you know, the tours have not wanted to make this decision and they've basically waited for somewhere to make it for them. Australia was always going to be a fairly likely candidate given the political nature there and the kind of law abiding sort of strict rules they have there. Um, it, it, some oddly enforced things. They can be very diligent in how they uh, do certain uh, law enforcement, shall we say. Um, so I, th- I think this is, will end up being quite a big win for the tour, although they deserve no credit for it. So how many do we think, you've got to think of a number here, how many of the top 100 across both men's and the women's game will not go to the Australian Open exclusively because of the COVID situation, whether that be vaccination or restrictions? If we had to put a number on paper today, uh, I'll start with you, George, because Calvin's older and needs more time to think. Um so I think on the one hand, it'll be impossible for us to know because I don't think anyone's going to come out and say I'm not going because of the vaccine. Yeah, but if they say, well, well, the rule is if they say they're injured, they're injured. We have to take their word for it. But if they don't say they're injured, it's obvious. Well, I still think they'll try and cover it with injury. But anyway, <laughs> um, that's, you know, that's my cynical view on it. However, I would actually be very surprised if the number's more than 
five on either tour. Like genuinely. So I, ten I, total. I, if it's higher than ten, I'd be pretty astonished. Um, I mean, it just so happens that the most high-profile male player we're expecting to go there could be one of those ten. Um, mm. But I, I'd be very surprised if it. And you're already hearing people, you know, Dominic Team, someone who's not been vaccinated, who said he is going to do it. Um, so Sissipas is similar. So that that was two of the more high-profile players making the move. It's just too much money for the bottom the bottom rungs. So it really, yeah. it'd be a high-ranked player not doing it. I imagine. Um, weirdly, I, I'd actually put Conter in the racket of someone I think might not have it done. Um, I, th- I think she's someone who might not go to the Australian Open and who also may be able to cover it with. And, and that is not based on any intel whatsoever, by the way. That was just a gut feeling. Um, but it's just. I mean, let's face it, last couple of years, there's not been much point in Joe Conter going to the Australian Open anyway. <laughs> I think it's, it's that kind of dual thing where, in her mind, her career is winding down quite a lot. Yeah. Doesn't need the money, probably. Um, and is kind of weirdly principled in her own way and quite hard to shake off what she thinks. It's not about weirdly principled, but I don't think it's weird to have, well, well, it is weird like, to have principles I mean, in this country these days. But you No, know. but I mean like weirdly principled in terms of like what she's principled about. Like I always found like the, the plastic water ones, the one I go to as an example, that like why she wouldn't use like a, a plastic water bottle on top that you refill because she's worried about someone spiking it. You know, that, that, that's yeah. what I kind of mean. Like, the sort of thing she gets quite set on. Um, that is wild. It is mad. Like, that's crazy. Like, the, the thought... I understand the logic with these very intense people who are, you know, so concerned about their own career. I can see how you go down that hole. Um, but The that, idea that anyone thinks that they have to spike Joe Conta to put her off is laughable. Yeah, exactly. But there's yeah. a lot of much cheaper and easier things you could do. Yeah. yeah. Play tennis against her. It's madness, but uh, it's just examples like that that make me think... If there was someone I was going to hang my hat on and say, I wouldn't be that surprised if they they were in that group. Uh, she she would be one of them. But I don't think I've libeled her there, James. Am I? I think that was quite. A- so no, I think I did, but I wasn't <laughs> wasn't fully concentrating. So what happens when we, this is proper like love tennis podcast after dark because we're recording <laughs> it at ten o'clock at night and George has had about four hours sleep all weekend, as far as I can tell. Um, Calvin, you've had more than enough time to think of a number now. Do you, how many do you think across the two tours won't go on COVID um, ground? I'll say six total. Hmm. I think I was. Um, I, I'm going to go as low as three. I think. I think it'll be laughably low. I think they'll just get on with it. I think the the issue that some of them might have, and I might be wrong here, but like if they've not had the first one yet, you've got to have. Is it six weeks in between? Yeah, but there is a there is a one shot now, right? Is it the Johnson oh, it? vaccine? I think is is one shot, which okay. I mean I don't think many of them will have that. Um, but yes, it, it depends what they are. Like I think AstraZeneca is six weeks optimal, but you can condense it. So, but yeah, you're right. I mean, wasn't it over here like they were they were really strict on it here in the summer? Where because I know a few people who who needed like there's there's one person I know like like was like two days inside outside of it so she could go on holiday and mm. they wouldn't let her have it. That's um, so mine was three months, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. Weeks, yeah. If it's that, yeah, but then like so even if it's six weeks, they're gonna have to have it in the next couple of weeks mm. to be able yeah. to have the second one in time to get to Australia and and avoid the two, uh, especially if they're in qualifying. If they're in qualifying, yeah. they're pushing it now. Uh, and they and qualifying looks like it's going to be in Melbourne rather than in the Middle East as it was last year. So yeah, they they, they are in a spot of bother. You're right. And just to say on that point, you know, for following on what we were saying before, you know, there's still 
weeks to go of the season. You know, that some of them would be pretty worried about doing this um, until, well, I mean, I, I don't know about it. Maybe the ATP finalists interest, will be an interesting case study then. Um, I imagine they'll all be asked about it all week in Turin. Um, also, you know, getting into Italy without a double vaccination is a bit of a pain in the backside of the moment. I assume they'll just get exemptions, but like I know getting into Europe at the moment, if you're double vaxxed, it's very easy. And if you're not, it's not. Um, so that that may may prove to be be tricky. But yes, this is one of those stories that will not go away, as you always say, George. Um, and it will certainly be something that we talk about in the future, I'm sure. So one thing we do know is we'll have at least one world number one in Australia, won't we? Barty's come out and said... She has done it, but she also kind yeah. of, also then at the same time did kind of defend the uh, idea of keeping your your medical history to yourself, which I suppose is the uh, thing is it's not medical history. I like I find that like, argument very very brittle because it's not like I'm asking you to detail me like your last four endoscopies. Like I'm asking whether you've had a vaccination. Like it's not we, uh, and it's not just a vaccination. It, it's like saying did you wash your hands when you went to the toilet just then and going, well, I think it would be giving away my medical information. It would be very unfair indeed. It's mad how this thing has come out with this because I, I know because I've had to have it done, but most tennis players, I guarantee you like, I'm going to say 90% of the top 100 tennis, 90% of the people who, who are in the top anywhere, whatever ranking it is, right. They have had to play tournaments in places like Thailand, Vietnam, Nigeria, Ghana, somewhere anywhere else in Africa, you have to have a lot of vaccines to do that. And I've mm-hmm. had them done and they will all have had them done because I've never come across. I've been a coach working on various tours now for 15 years and you have to have the players get them done. And I've never once before the last 18 months, have I ever come across a player going, I'm not having a vaccine done. Like it's just, just the thing that, that you get done. It's like, right, we're going to tournament, we're going to Africa for three weeks, right? We need some jabs. Yeah. You go to boots and you get them done. It's just mad how like this is like a subject now. Mm. And you have a vaccine passport. Like that's that's how it works. Like that's how yeah. I know you've had the vaccinations. And yeah, all of a sudden it's become some I mean, we know that there's there's so many threads to pull out there, but maybe we're not the right people to to do it. But we'll come back to it. I've no doubt about that. Um, that's one of the, the good things about the Australian Open still being a whole three months away that we're already talking about it. And on that, just quickly on that, about 18 months, no, a bit long, about two years ago, I had all the worst jabs you had to get to go to Africa and ended up not, I ended up not going um, <laughs> for one reason or another. I had the yellow fever and I remember, I forget which one it was, they pulled it out as the biggest needle I've ever seen. I'd have that jabbed <laughs> in my arm. Brutal. <laughs> And ended up that for one reason or another, we ended up just going to Greece instead. Where I didn't need anything. <laughs> uh, poor Calvin getting jabbed for nothing. Well, he's been jabbed now, and it was all worth it because he hasn't got COVID. Um, we don't know whether Yannick Sinner has been jabbed or not. He may have been, he may not have been. Uh, one thing we do know is that he has won a fifth ATP title. He was the man who triumphed. It was the one seed versus the two seed. In the European Open final, Diego Schwartzman against uh, Yannick Sinner might have been one of the bigger height differentials in a in an ATP final for a while. Um, Sinner, frankly, smashed him, and, and really, as he did all week, he didn't drop a set. He didn't even go to a tie break. Uh, he beat Schwartzman six two six two in the final of the European Open in Antwerp. 
Schwartzman, of course, knocked out Andy Murray earlier in the week. Um, we will come on to Murray. I think maybe we should start on um, Sinner because he's had a kind of up and down year. George, I don't know whether you thought this is a set of conditions that we would see him winning. I guess it wasn't the strongest field in the world, but I guess good to, to keep winning titles, isn't it? Yeah, um, I think there was some sort of stat. I think he's the youngest player to reach five titles since Djokovic, something like that. So that's mm. pretty pretty good company to be uh, keeping up with. Um, and you're right because I think we he's obviously had a brilliant year. Like in terms of when you break down the raw facts of the progress he's made, you know, he's pretty close to top ten now. Good chance of qualifying for the ATP finals. He's obviously taken that next step. And it's because of how highly we rated him last year that it almost feels like at times he's he's not done as well as we thought he might. Um, but I'm, yeah, I think we can be, he can be pretty happy. He's not dropped a set this week. I'm pretty, I think he won about four of his eight sets, 6-2 as well. I mean, he's, he's mm. really like hammering people away in a lot of these sets. Six, actually. Six of his eight sets, he won 6-2, okay. which is absurd. Yeah, so pretty... Um, pretty impressive stuff um mm. i i think yeah the, the test is going to start coming for him can he beat the biggest and the best over five sets regularly at the slams that's always the big change and is his game versatile enough or adaptable enough to change things up when plan a which is a decent plan a don't get me wrong but isn't working um they're, mm. they're the question marks over center at the minute but i think if we step back and look at the progress he's making in terms of rising up the rankings can't really knock the year he's had and the titles he's won um so yeah encouraging i kind of think about it and and weirdly i think we would think or from what we've said about the two of them they're quite similar players even though they're not is yannick sinner and andre rublev which is that you know not the same in terms of the game that they play but in terms of what they've achieved you know sinner is becoming and it's very valuable a guy who smashes everyone in 250s and 500s and, you know, doesn't lose silly matches to guys ranked 40 places below him in the world. I've said that he'll probably now get dumped out in Vienna against someone I've never heard of. Um, but, you know, Rublev got to number six or seven in the world by virtue of basically having, you know, doing exactly that by smashing the people he should smash. And all right, he didn't have big high-profile wins, but Calvin, you know, you've often said this about Rublev that he doesn't win those matches against big players. But there is a career to be made and an argument to be made that if you hang around at seven or eight in the world long enough, you will eventually learn how to do that, no? Yeah, there is. And also, it happens maybe once once in every six slams where everyone else just gets knocked out yeah. and you leave yourself open um, and, and somebody wins a slam. Uh, who does that? So yeah, I mean, but I think Sinner will get there. Rublev, I'm less, I'm less sure of just with the way that they play and the limitations. I think Sinner, uh, he'll naturally develop more of a game. And I also think if if he plays his best, if if he brings his nine out of ten, nine and a half out of ten to a match, he can beat anybody. Whereas I don't think that's necessarily the case with Rublev. I think he'd have to bring his ten out of ten. And one of the best players would have to bring their would have to be down at like a a six or a six and a half for him to beat them over five. Yeah, I, I was kind of gonna say similar. I think in terms of trajectory, he needs to be looking at you know what guys like Zverev, Sissipas, and Medvedev are doing. Um, and I'd 
as a positive for Zinner, I'd actually be comparing his trajectory to Felix as someone we thought had the talent in the game to potentially rise up. And he's he's above him in the race right now and a year younger. So in terms of the materials Sinner has and how good he could be, you know, the challenge next year is to crack top five for me. That's that's what he should be looking to do. Rublev for me, I'd be surprised if in his career he got much higher than four or five. Um, I think he might be fifth in the race now. Um, and I think oh, Rublev, yeah, he's fifth yeah. in the race. Yeah. I think that would represent a, an amazing season for what Rublev brings to the table, as good as he is. Um, he's not as good as the four guys who are above him. Um, and I don't do you think, think he's not going to win a slam? Or do you think, I think in he the post-83 era... I think he could win a slam. I think, you know, yeah. if you look at like a Marin Cilic two weeks, I think Rublev's good enough to get that hot and win one. I wouldn't put money on him winning one. I'd put money on Tsitsipas and Zverev definitely winning one at some point, um, which isn't that outlandish to say. And I think Sinner's in a very good position to go on and win several if he if he keeps uh, developing as he should. Um, but as we always say, we're going into an era now where once Djokovic and co hang up the rackets, is someone going to go there and start dominating all the slams? There's an argument yeah. Medvedev, Zverev and Tsitsipas will... They'll be the dominant forces, but they're still all susceptible to strange losses. Maybe not Medvedev so much on a hard court, um, but he's susceptible to that on clay, for example. So th- there's going to be openings with these guys. Um, although Djokovic feels like he could still go for another four years at the minute, so maybe it won't come. <laughs> well, yeah, he plays about nine tournaments a year. So, I mean, yeah, it's eminently doable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that helps as well. Um, Andy Murray, of course, is in action in Antwerp this week, and we'll talk a little bit more about him next. Yes, now, if you're someone who doesn't follow tennis in a granular ma- manner or spend their life on Twitter, like the other three of us, um, you, you may not know exactly what went on with Andy Murray last week. Uh, we were recording as he was in action against Francis TFO, uh, a match that he eventually won although not without some struggle. Three hours and 45 minutes he was on court in total. He played three tie breaks for the first time in his career. Uh, he won two of them, won the final tie break 10-8. It was a remarkable match. Um, he then went on to lose to Diego Schwartzman uh, two days later. But I kind of want to revisit that TFO match because, you know, it, I think it's easy to underestimate how hard it is for Andy Murray playing those sorts of matches at the moment, George. Like, he's obviously supremely fit, but it's not easy, is it? Well, I mean, he he put it in quite a good context himself this week where he's like, you know, it's pretty crazy. He's still still out there with this metal hip, still able to go through like four hours of brutal tennis. And, you know, uh, some of the bits I saw, (laughs) TFO was really taking it to him at points you know it's a big physical slugging match um you know i i don't think much has changed in terms of when we're talking about murray at the minute you know the disappointment is coming that you know he's then lost to schwartzman in the next round again a match where he was kind of up against a good player and didn't get the job done um but that said for him to start winning tight long matches against players like tfo who are very, you know, very solid ATP players. And, you know, that's really the level I kind of see Murray operating at the minute is somewhere between 40 and 80. Yeah. Um, capable of challenging a top 20 player, not going to beat them that regularly. Um, 
but will beat a lot of the guys around that ranking on the tour. Um, that's probably a fair description of what he he is at the moment. And I think he'd think he'd say the same himself. Probably, I think he, he the figure he puts is maybe he feels he's a top sixty player in terms of form. Something like that. Yeah, um, I mean, he regularly says that he's hitting at top twenty level. I never really know what that means, but you know. That, that is what he claims. Yeah. Um, Calvin, I know you saw a fair bit of uh, of Murray this week and, and that TFO match. I mean, were you impressed with what you saw? Is that the right word to use? Um, yeah, I think you've got to be impressed with... It's hard to remove it from the context that you're looking at, isn't it? it it's like, yeah, you've got to be impressed. The guy's a metal hip and he's competing with the best players in the world. I mean, he's... We're only sort of four weeks removed from him taking a bit longer, maybe six weeks removed from him taking to, um, since he passed the five sets, mm. um, who's legitimately one of the two, two or three best players in the world this year. But um, you've got to be impressed with it. But I still think the, the, the same questions are still there. He'll know that. Um, I'm certain of it. But the one worry I'd say with losing to Schwartzman is of all the top, 15 players in the world you'd think he was the one who you'd want to play yeah um if you're if you've got murray's game he's not going to blow him away murray's peak murray would have destroyed schwartzman no doubt about it with with game styles and that kind of thing like you can see him losing to like i still think zverev's going to be a problem for him city passes he's got no chance against djokovic um rublev's a tough one um her catch is not a great one and he's got him again this week um mm. but Schwartzman is one that you'd think yeah I could see that I thought I looked at the drawer and I thought oh, this has opened up quite nicely here he could could have a big run here and and then he started so well against Schwartzman and then it was so weird wasn't it he was like he was a bit unhinged the way he was playing he was like laughing at himself when he double faulted he gave a point away late on in in the match um and started like getting pumped up, fit, pumping his fist because he lost the point. He's like laughing mm. all the time, and it was really strange. I thought that Schwartzman match. Yeah, it's it's funny, isn't it? We're so used to kind of Murray chuntering away, you know, at the back of the court and hating himself and shouting at his box. Somehow, in the in his pomp, it was acceptable because he was winning, and he'd do all this self harm, and then at the end, he'd smile. But now you don't get the payoff. Like it's just a man beating himself up on court, and then he loses. Like it's like a Hollywood film where you don't get the ending. Like the bloke just dies, and then it fades to credits. Like it somehow feels slightly um kind of perverse. Um, as you mentioned, Calvin, he he is in action in Vienna this week, and and he's got a uh, Hubert Hercats in the first round, which is not a great draw. Um, Dan Evans continues his run of bad draws by getting Carlos Alcaraz as well. Um, sorry, George, I interrupted you. Yeah, it's, I mean, I was just going to say, I think some of the reflect. I was reading some of his kind of reflections ahead of Vienna this week, and he's kind of saying a lot of what we've been saying. You know, we, we've kind of commented he gets a lot of breakpoint chances and isn't taking them anywhere near as frequently as you'd expect, like peak Andy Murray to. And I think he was, you know, he's saying he needs to be more clinical and ruthless. That was used to be like the strongest part of my game and is now not there. Um, and he's throwing away sets when he's in front and whatever. Um, but, but I do still think there's definitely more to be positive about the negative in, in general for him. Um, mm. I feel like he can flick that switch. 
Um, but he needs to, yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of weirdly am starting to fancy him a lot more at best of five sets now. A bit more time to kind of figure it out. Um, <laughs> utterly insane. Before. Probably mental, <laughs> but like the Sissipas match, I think, was a big potential turning point for convincing me of Murray not being a total just pop it at Grand Slams now. Um, right. I can't see him winning one. Um, no, no the, I don't think any of us can. I, I think there's about two people on the planet who can see Andy Murray winning a Grand Slam, and, and they're both surnamed Murray. Um, <laughs> sort of the problem. Um, Calvin, we, we talked a lot this week in the, in the WhatsApp group, and I thought we should share it with our listeners, since that's the whole point of it, um, about kind of Murray's game and, and what he's supposed to be doing. And what, what, do, what did you not see from him this week that you thought he needed? I still think he's got, and this is the difficult thing. See, you're looking at changing a lifestyle of almost three decades of the way that he's played in that mm. he's always been quite a counter-puncher, quite passive. He likes to sort of pull his opponents into weird positions that they don't want to be in. And I, you can do that if you can if you move better than almost anybody has ever moved around a tennis court, which is what he used to do. Um now he doesn't have that option now because if if they if they hit him out wide in the court, as we said in our WhatsApp group, once he gets pulled out of the the parameter of the single sidelines, he's he's not winning any points at all. When or or he's only winning a point if they miss a sitter. Um, so he's got to be more aggressive. He's got to do damage, more damage on his first serve. He's got to do more damage on his three quarter length forehands. I think. Um, and hit those, be more uh, ruthless with them, which he's never been great at, if I'm honest. He's always, his, his backhand's always been the better shot. He mm. can hit the forehand. I've seen him hit it personally. He can really unload on it, but he tends not to. And he's still missing a few too many of them. He's, he's Not only is he not putting them away, he misses a few. There's one really early on um, against Schwartzman where he'd done a big first serve and then he gets sort of mid-court four and hits it halfway up the net. Um, but yeah, uh, to sum it up, it is what we call his plus one, his first shot after serve, that he's doing no damage with at all. He's getting... So he, he does have a big first serve, he always has done. Um, big first serve, the return comes back kind of somewhere mid-court, and it's the kind of place where Zverev or Tsitsipas, they just destroy it, Sinner would destroy it. And Murray's kind of getting himself into a rally, and it's I don't can't quite figure out whether it's just that he can't he doesn't feel confident hitting that ball, or it's just something that he's always done. Yeah, is it, I was going to kind of ask you: is it is it a, a going for the lines thing? Is it a power thing? I mean, how do you set about? You, you know, let's say it's Monday morning, and someone says to you, "Right, I've got Andy on court. Can you come and give him a weapon forehand, please?" What do you do? How do you work that out? I think it's more just a mind. I think it's a mindset thing in that he's always be, had the mentality of not making errors, playing yeah. safe, don't give anything away, make your opponent beat you. And it's this idea of, of making your opponent lose rather than going and beating them. And he, there's an aggressive way to do that in the way that he always has. It's not necessarily, he's never been a stand 20 feet behind the baseline and just chase. He's always been more intricate. There's more nuance to that with Murray. But he just doesn't have that option now. Of, of, of like, I always thought with his second serve, like there was always this big, big debate about his second serve that it was pretty weak, it was pretty slow when he hit it. But I was always of the opinion that that actually suited him 
because in his I'm talking in his peak here because it meant the opponents attacked him and he was always more comfortable when they attacked him because he's counter-attacking but you could drag them into positions where they thought they were in the lead in the point and they weren't um so it kind of like it was a weakness and a strength but now you can't do that now if they attack mm. it i mean also we're also in a bit of a different era we've moved on where guys can just blow him away um mm. they just hit the ball harder than they've ever done um and i know a couple of players who who start playing i know dan cox who used to be 200 in the world and he retired only for a couple of years and he's come back and I was talking to him last year and said, what have you noticed about the difference? And he said, just the guys at all levels are just hitting the ball harder. Mm. Um, even, even in two or three years. So it's something I think, I think that you, you, you know, and we've talked before about um, how great it is just to watch live tennis and how much more of an appreciation you get by being courtside compared to watching on telly. And it is definitely something you appreciate about tennis down the levels. Like if you wander around second week of Wimbledon and there's loads of juniors going on and, you know, there's 16 year olds hitting the ball bigger than you could ever dream of hitting a tennis ball. And okay, maybe it would always look like that to someone like me who doesn't know what they're talking about. But yeah, it does feel like everybody whacks it now. Having said that though, I mean, he's got a great record. He's got a great head to head record against Del Potro. And none of the guys hit the ball harder than Del Potro does. Hmm. Um, yeah. So it's it's maybe not that. I think it's it's more that I still think his main problem, and his main problem that he can't solve is that he can't get out of the corners anymore. His main problem that he's going to have to solve if he's going to he's going to win those matches is he's got to be more clinical when he has half chances in points. And I think that's a combination of a technical thing, but also a mindset thing. Is, mm. is he willing to go to and yeah look you can come into a match and it'd be one all 15 all and you get mid-court forehand a half chance you can unload on a forehand whether he's going to do that at five all 30 all is another matter because it's just in his nature and it's we're back to the scorpion and the frog story again out <laughs> ah yes the famous <laughs> scorpion and frog story how could we forget um he, as I say, he's back in action uh, on Monday. Uh, he may already have played when you listen to this, but he's playing Monday afternoon, uh, 4.30pm UK time, I believe, uh, up against Hubert Hercats, the man they call the new Andy Murray, uh, or the man they call the destroyer of Roger Federer because he bageled Roger at Wimbledon the last time he was there. Um, and he could play Dan Evans in the second round, but that would require two results that we don't expect. I think just the one quick thing I'd say on it as well is that He's getting guys like Hercatch, uh, Schwartzman, um, Sitsipas, Zverev to a lesser degree, he beat Zverev, who I think he'd benefit from playing some guys who have got some bad memories against him. And they've got <laughs> issue of, of having beat And I think I think TFO's got a bit of that. And I think TFO, even though he beat him last time out, you could tell just respected him so much. Hmm. Whereas Sitsipas, when he played him, you could see, like, who's this old guy that I'm playing? Yeah, like, I know he is obviously, but there wasn't that scar tissue of like, you know, this guy's dragged me around a court like 15 times. And I think that we saw some of that when he won Antwerp the last time. Whereas with Rinker, he's beaten the Rinker so many times that even when Rinker was in front and playing better, you just didn't think he was going to beat him. Um, whereas these guys and her catch is the same, like her catch now beaten twice, but he'll have never played against Murray before, before these twice. He wasn't even on tour when Murray was, was at his best. Yeah. 
on that point, the, the one match he would have had like that was uh, Kyrgios, of course, when they kind of pulled out. But Kyrgios has always spoken about like how he's always like beating himself before playing Murray because it's been such yeah. a kind of torrid experience. I think that was one of my kind of most one of the most memorable matches of his first comeback was that first one he lost to Kyrgios for the first time in his career. That was a bizarre match. I mean, Kyrgios should have killed him. I mean, like, Murray could barely walk on the court and he pulled out of Wimbledon like straight after. He still just let it be dragged into this horrible, horrible like set. Yeah, I mean, Murray just reads Kyrgios as serve better than anyone. Kyrgios got, as I've said before, Kyrgios got one of the top 10, 15 serves of all time. And Murray just treats it like he's returning Diego Schwartzman's serve. He picks it every time, just sort of catches it on his racket and throws it back. There's hardly any aces. But when I said that, though, George, I was mainly talking about full-time tennis players. Yeah. So, um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good point. Well made. Um, let's move on to another full-time tennis player without a full-time coach. Emma Raducanu has abandoned her latest coach. Well, I mean, I say abandoned. It was a trial coach, so she was never going to take him with her. Um, she spent a week hitting with Esteban Carriel, and she's now headed off to Transylvania um, for a transformative week, no doubt. Um, very bizarre circumstances where there will be no fans for the uh, Transylvania Open in Cluj, but there was a crowd for her practice session. Just bizarre, like Mexican waves at her practice session. She's, of course, um, half Romanian. Her father, Ian, is from Romania. Um, so she's obviously pretty popular there. Um, you know, the surname, of course, is Romanian. Um, but she's just out there with her physio and her father. Uh, no coach on this occasion for whatever reason. Um, I believe she's got Herzog in the first round. Is that right, George? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tell me something about Polona Herzog. She's Slovenian, I can tell you that much. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've watched her play a few times before at Slams. Um, she- I can't say I've ever been like sufficiently impressed to think that Radikan. This is like the first match I'm expecting Radikanu to like win at tour level. Um, <laughs> you know, like, it's probably the first time you've ever gone into a match and thought she would win. Actually, when you think about it, yeah, I mean, like it's kind of crazy. <laughs> like I have that. I, I'm not convinced I've ever gone into a match thinking Emma Radikanu would win. Yeah, in I her think, whole career, the one I was previously most optimistic for, which is why I picked her in fantasy, was. Uh, the replacement for Jen Brady. Um, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Pretty confident of that, um, given that was like someone outside the slam coming in and she'd had a three good qualifying matches or whatever. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's an interesting time again. It, it sounds like Kirill will get a bit more of an elongated shot with her. Um, but then she's still being asked, she's like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to have a coach by the Australian Open. So that's also not like a kind of... Oh, it's been really great with Esteban this week. Uh, definitely going to make him my coach. So it's, there's still a bit of uncertainty. Uh, one one thing I did quite like about some of the comments she's made um, that we reported this evening is like her kind of saying that actually the, there is a positive to not having a coach because when it comes down to it, the biggest moments you're there on your own. Um, so mm. I kind of don't mind that, but equally. I think it will certainly benefit her in the long run to uh, get someone looking at the there are still holes in a game that can be fixed um, and improved. And it's definitely much better to have a coach there helping you do that. Uh, even if you are out there on your own, most of the time. Um, yeah. I was going to say that I think was the girl who she played in the first round of the U S open was Emma ranked above her. Uh, no, she, she, 
She was ranked like 150 in the world ahead of the US Open. So she played in the first round. Stephanie Vogelay. Yeah. Who, who should have I... actually lost to Jody Burridge in the first round of qualities. Um, <laughs> oh, in uh, uh, Wimbledon? No, at uh, the US Open. I think Jody had set a match points against her. Um, uh, this doesn't check out, Calvin. Who's that? Maybe I've messed Vog- mixed Vogelay up with someone else then. I'm sure I watched that match. Uh, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. Sorry. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what was the girl she played. I'm just wondering how many matches she's played where she's been ranked higher than the opponent. Uh, yeah, very few. I mean, she was seeded in qualifying at the US Open, so she would have been ranked higher than the two girls she played there. Yeah, um, Bibiani Schufs and uh, Mariam Bolkovadze. Uh, neither of whom I can profess to having great knowledge of. Well, Marion, uh, but I do have a story about. Does anyone want to hear another one of my stories? One hundred percent, so much. Um, so, Marion Bolkvadze, when I, I captain the Yorkshire Under Eighteen Girls County Cup team. Um, all right, all right, no need to brag. <laughs> and the first year I did it, when I thought we had half a chance of doing all right, we went down there and we played Middlesex, who randomly it became apparent had this well we thought at the time she was russian but she's actually georgian um player who lived in middlesex and had never met anyone else on the team they'd somehow found that because she was resident in middlesex at the time she could play for um uh middlesex's junior county cup team so she turned up and at the time i think she already ranked about 300 in the world Mm. at the time and, and basically destroyed everyone so that's how I know Marion Boltvadze because she played against us at Bath at Junior County Cup um, she did actually live in Britain for a while to be fair she lived in Britain <laughs> for about 18 months and trained there but, okay. um, so she's a more legitimate I mean look it's a heck of a trophy to have on your record isn't it you know the, the, is there a bigger regional girls under 18s tournament in England each year probably not well, it's oh, nice. It's, it's, it's the county cup. That's I mean, what that's called. what I mean. It's 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 the biggest um, but, tournament for girls but, that age in that area. But about maybe about six months after that, a girl I coached beat Marion Botvadze actually in a British Tour final. So, mm. so you've got you've got you've got the wood over on her. That's you good. The last laugh is what you're saying as well. <laughs> yeah. Needless to say, Calvin had yeah. the last laugh. Uh, but yeah, no, so back, back to it. I'm just wondering how many times. I mean, would, would Emma have been ranked higher than the girl who she played um, the other week? She's ranked 23 in the world now, yeah, right? She, she would be now, yeah, because she. Um, yeah, yeah, she, she was, was ranked higher than Sastovic. Yeah. Well, yeah, she was seeded. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Sastovic, I think, was 100 nailed on. Um, right. Anyway, the coaching situation obviously is an interesting one. I, I feel like we probably obsess about it a bit much, but, um, you know, for what it's worth, Calvin, I mean, I suppose it's not a surprise that Esteban hasn't lasted more than a week. I mean, he may well be back, but, you know, I know you hate trial periods, but it doesn't seem like a surprise. Um, yeah, I thought it'd be there. Do we have, is there any information as to why he's not there? Is it is it some visa issue or? So no? I think he still had some commitments to, Katie Swan, is it something like that? I, right, okay. I think so. That you had a a commitment he couldn't get out of this late in the day, but that was already always part of the agreement. Yeah, okay. it's a nightmare having to cancel your dentist appointments. Like you know, you, they're tough to get. You know, so pre-existing appointments. Yeah, bang on. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I think we. I'm sure that we'll see him again. With I'm sure that's not the end of it. I mean, 
if well, if you get rid of if you get rid of the guy who you've made, you get rid of the guy who's made fourth round of Wimbledon with. Then you're getting rid of the guy who you won the US Open with. Then you're getting rid of the guy who some people, some knowledgeable people consider the best tennis coach in the world. You got you got really you got to ask some questions there as to mm. like what's going on. Yeah. Like this is, you get into the stage there where it's getting like a bit ridiculous if you're doing that. <laughs> but I don't think she will have done that yet. No, no. Well, we hope to see more of Esteban one way or another. Um, George, I'll give you, I'll throw over to you for any other business because I think we've exhausted. Uh, everything we had planned to to talk about. Um, Annette Consovite, I mentioned in the in the run up, she is now in with a very good chance of qualifying for the WTA World Tour Finals, which is probably not something I was expecting to say at any point this year. Um, basically, all spots bar one are now gone because Paola Bedosa is now in. So it's Jabir versus Consovite basically for the final place. And Jabir isn't playing this week, I believe. Yeah, she's pulled out with an injury that saw her retire uh, first round last week. So I think Contivate, pretty sure she needs to win the title, but it might just be a finals enough. I'm not sure. But she, she needs a very good week to, to pin. Uh, you're absolutely right. She does need to win the title to overhaul her. But equally, it sounds like Jibber may not be fit enough to go anyway if that injury is. You know, she's only got two weeks to recover. Possibly, but it might just be a precaution as well where she's like, well, because I mean, the prize money, the WTA finals is huge. I mean, it's like one of the biggest prize money out there for, for any um, yeah. any tennis player, male or female, Grand Slam, you know, it's, it's massive. So um, mm. I'm pretty sure she'll be quietly hoping Contavite loses uh, <laughs> at some point. And, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, which is not that likely because she obviously won the uh, Kremlin Cup last week and she won it a couple of stonking results i didn't see the match but i know she beat garbinia muguruza for two games which i can only believe really partially involved muguruza blowing up in a big way um but she beat marketa von Drusova. she beat alexandrova in the final in three sets you know on, on home soil no bad thing at all um petkovic Sinyakova as well so some very decent results there for Annette Contavite. Um, I think she's still coached by Dimitri Tursunov off the top of my head. Um, so I'm kind of in, intrigued. I mean, how much interesting how much interesting things do we know about Annette Contavite open to the floor? She used to uh, work with, um, what's the name, Nigel Sears for ages, didn't she? Um, right, very good. Um, it was, I mean, I know her from years ago where she, there was a quite a sort of strong group of, British junior girls. Laura Robson was one of them, sort of 94 age group. Um, Laura Robson was one of them um, who obviously stood out, but there were a couple of girls from Sheffield called the Wren sisters, Jen and Jessica Wren, who were, the, were I think at maybe under 14s, they were the world number one and two um, wow. ranked. And basically Contavite was always friends with those girls and always kind of like, she was always kind of seen as like, is she Estonian or Latvian? Uh, Estonian, yeah. Estonian, yeah. She was, the, you know, the Estonian girls who hangs around with the good British girls. And in the end, she's been turned out to be way, way better than any of the girls she hung around with. Mm. Well, we shall see. It'll be interesting to see how she goes in Romania this week. As I say, she has to win the title to overhaul on Strabur, but that may end up being academic. Um, now I really have exhausted your list, George. Would you like to add anything? The only other thing I'd put on the list uh, that we perhaps not touched was just that Barty's ended her season completely, which we sort of knew anyway. Mm. Um, and I suppose I had asked the question, how would we rate it? But th that may 
may hold for a review podcast when we could maybe review. I, I think that sounds like something we could talk about when we discuss the WTA Tour Finals and and how she won't be there. Um, but yes, Ash Barty has indeed ended her season. Uh, but as you say, not a total surprise. Um, I think that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you very much for joining us, as always, and thank you for listening. Um, do leave us a rating or a review. Follow us on Twitter at Love Tennis Pod and take care of yourself, as always. Sports Social Podcast Network.